Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the evening service. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. The reading this evening is taken from Galatians chapter 1 uh, verse 10 and ending on chapter 2 verse 21. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, you probably don't. It's page 1178. Am I now trying to win human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human source, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard from my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who set me apart from birth, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They are only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along too. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we were in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does judge by external appearance. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, 
who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcised group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For though the law I died to the law so that I might live for God, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for its righteousness could be gained through the law. Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Linda. Mammoth reading. Hi, everyone. Oh, that's a bit bright. <laughs> Can't see you. Uh, let's pray before we start, or before I start to talk. Father, thank you that what we're talking about doesn't come from a person. They're not human ideas. And Father, this evening, we would see Jesus. Help us focus our hearts and our minds and our energy on him this evening and speak to us from the truth of who he is. Amen. Okay, so we're in a third of a series on Galatians and there's something going on in this first community of Jesus' followers and if you were here for the previous two weeks, lucky you. Um, Jesus, Paul talks, he makes a very sharp defense about the gospel. The accusation at the beginning of Galatians is that the, the message, the good news that Paul has been talking about has something miss, missing. And that to really be in God's family, you have to obey the Jewish customs and Paul responds really sharply that there's nothing missing to his gospel. The new king and Messiah of Israel 
and the inauguration of the new king can only be announced once. That's what the word gospel refers to. And the fake gospel, the fake news that you need to add something onto it to obey Jewish customs, well, it can't be the good news or the gospel at all because it talks about a time and an era before Jesus came, before the Messiah came. Now, because Jesus is alive, a new creation has been initiated. Family membership is no longer based on custom and practice, which God gave for a time, but it's no longer that time. The way that you belong to God's family is by putting faith in Jesus and receiving his Holy Spirit. So that's what we've covered before. And today we're going to think about being a people pleaser, which was at the top of the verses that um, Linda read to us. Paul is basically being accused of leaving stuff out for a quiet life so that what we do can kind of fit in. Now, to help us get into what's happening this week, I thought rather than plough through the stories here, which we're going to do a little bit, but we'd look at some stories to help us unpack what Paul's talking about here. This is a picture from... um, Nepal is in Kathmandu, which my friend Elizabeth took almost two years ago when we were out there. And it made her reflect. She told a story about this. It's two people receiving a blessing from a monk in the middle of the street or on the side of the street where there's people going past. And she reflected that actually... God and his spirit wants to be part of everything that we do. There isn't a separation in Nepalese society, really, between private and public life. It's all part of the same thing. And in Roman life, in Paul's day, it was the same. In Paul's time, nothing happened without idols being worshipped in the hope of a blessing to to you or to your family or to your business. And the custom was, the good practice was, of good Jews, followers of Israel's God, was not to eat and drink with people that behaved like that, who worshipped idols, but to live separately. And one of the amazing things I think that Paul is saying in these verses, in this passage, is that there is a new reality in the new kingdom of Jesus. He's in us. We take him with us everywhere that we go. That's my first reflection, the first story. God wants to be in all that we do, and he's made it possible for that to be the case. A second picture that we're going to see is of another place in Kathmandu. This is a burial ground. We went to lots of different temples and things on that day. And this moment, when I took this picture, was a really profound spiritual moment for me when the Lord really spoke to me. What's going on is in front of us. To the left, there's a river, which you can see on that side in the picture that side, (laughs) can't do it back to front. 
and there's people lining up, and behind us there's bodies lining up along the river, dead bodies waiting to be cremated. And we were just walking past this arch, and there's a dead body lying on the floor here as we walk past. I mean, public and private life all really muddled up together. And there's a bunch of women just standing here. I mean, I could have touched them. Maybe 12, 15 women wailing their hearts out, absolutely distraught. Now, this is not a place where the good news of Jesus is talked about. It's a deeply pagan temple. And as I walked past that body, what, what my, the conversation that I was having with the Lord was about how his power raises the dead, the physical dead, and that one day, that's what's, that's what's going to happen. And that's what, that's what I believe. That's the hope that we have. But the thing that seemed much harder to me spiritually to believe was that these women who were alive could know a new life in Jesus. That, that seemed really much harder, that even though they were alive and breathing, unlike the body they were grieving for, they didn't have Jesus, they didn't have hope. They were the alive dead. It was, it was a very profound thing that without Jesus, we're like zombies. And what Jesus did, the power that he, that he broke when he died and when he rose again, was to enable people that were far away, that never knew about him, that are locked into other powers, like we all are in some way or another before we know Jesus, to know him, to be brought back to life. It's not a human thing that we can do, but it's what God did. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's demolishing arguments, strongholds that are nothing to do with the gospel. He's fighting things that aren't human so that the truth of the gospel can be alive in people and stuck to, to stay with it. How do we know that life? We know it in Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 4, he mentions it several times. He uses this phrase, in Jesus. That's how we know life. Now, in Nepal, it's quite a tough place to be a follower of Jesus. Because when you bury your dead, the, league, the law is that you have to do this pagan ritual. There's, there's no opportunity to do anything else. It's physically dangerous. You're persecuted. There are places where they will kill you in Nepal for being a Christian. And it was like that in Rome. And although it's not physically dangerous everywhere on the globe to be a Christian, spiritually it's dangerous. We don't just really see it in our worldview because we keep things so separately, but it's true. The core message of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus is alive and his life is in us. 
But it's not a thing that he gives us for ourselves. It's not a thing that's for cosy, just, not just, for cosy, lovely Sunday evening services or Sunday morning services where we can be spiritually enriched ourselves. It's not an inward-facing thing. He does it because he wants the world to be different. And that's what happened. That's what started when Jesus came back to life. And that's what Paul's realized. Okay, that was my story in Nepal, in Kathmandu. Let's have a quick look at Paul's story. He lays out quite a lot of it in Galatians. We know that he was Jewish, he was from Tarsus, which he calls in another place in the New Testament, no ordinary city. It was a place of learning, and we know that he was a tent maker. His family made their living by making tents. He was a scholar. He would have learnt in Tarsus, and he also went to Jerusalem. And he says here in the passage that Linda read in chapter 1, verse 14, he was advanced in his, as a Pharisee. And the word, that, that the word, the kind of idea in that sentence is that he'd kept going like a boat against the tide. He'd really concentrated on developing his spiritual and moral life. He'd focused on the scriptures. He was really, really somebody that was devoted and loved God. And he violently persecuted the church because he believed that doing that would bring God's kingdom, a new Jerusalem, to earth, that it would be made new. But then Jesus reveals himself to Paul in real life, personally, and nothing, nothing is ever the same again. And faced with the real-life fact that Jesus the crucified Jesus was Israel's Messiah who had been put to death and more than that had risen again a new creation had started that's what he begins to understand and what Paul understands is that that inauguration of that event is not just good news for people who are in the Jewish family but for the whole world so what does Paul do? Well, this picture is a picture of Arabia. And I believe, if uh, Wikipedia is right, that that includes Mount Sinai. And when it says he retreats to Arabia, well, he makes himself scarce. He goes to a place where he can just sit and think about the scriptures and think about the person he's now talking to and praying to Jesus and what that means in terms of all of the things he knows in the scriptures. He goes back, if you like, in the footsteps of Moses to Mount Sinai. Maybe that's where he goes, to spend time in Jesus' presence. There's a revolution that's going on in his life. It's really important, isn't it? We know this, and it's just hard to make time to do it, to really study our scriptures, to really spend time praying together. And one of the things that the church leaders are calling us to do is to do some praying together more at events like prayer at the center. If you haven't come before, come. It's once a month, I think, on a Wednesday. And the authority with which people pray at those meetings will bless you. 
a few, a few um, months ago when um, the Afghanistan events happened and we were all just in shock about it. And I remember um, Ginny Law's husband, whose name's now completely left my head, thank you, praying that, that the, um, the, the leaders who were taking over power in Afghanistan would see Jesus, that they would have a revelation of him. And he prayed with such authority and such faith. It was really humbling. It was amazing. Come, come and pray with us. It's a really important engine room of our church spiritual life. It's a thing that we need to do and make a habit of doing. Okay, Peter's story. I really feel for Peter in this passage that we had read to us. I always, it just feels like he's at the butt end of the kick, really. And I, I really feel for him. I mean, that's kind of what being in leadership's like. You get the kick. And I, I, it's just really hard listening to Paul tear into him, apparently tear into him. Well, we know what Peter was like. We know that he deeply loved Jesus for who he was. And he tried to stay with him at the trial when Jesus was being, uh, before he was executed, but he didn't last the heat in the courtroom. And we know what happens afterwards. We know that he declares his love for Jesus and that Pentecost, thousands of people, thousands of Jewish people from all over the known world, from all sorts of, who speak all sorts of languages, come to know Jesus through what Peter says. And they all can hear him in their own language. I mean, it's amazing. God's working through Peter in this astonishing way. And yet, at Antioch, in Galatians 1, we hear a story about Peter getting in a muddle again. Now, the story is set out in more detail in Acts chapters 9 to 11. It's two pages or so. Go home and read it before you go to bed. It's a really exciting story, what happens in Acts 9 and 11. Peter has this vision that God gives him of three times um, animals, unclean animals, because Jewish people weren't allowed to eat eagles and pigs and all sorts of things. And they're all on a blanket and they come down in front of him in this vision and the Lord keeps taking away and bringing it down and bringing it. And then some other things happen. Go away and read it. And and Paul realizes that what God's saying is it's not really about the food. He's just saying that people who are not Jewish can be clean. They have the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. There's this revolution happening. This good news is for the whole world. So Peter knows that. He knows that before this Antioch event that happened that Paul's given him a kick about. But he's not really got quite straight in his head and some people come that say you've got to follow these customs as well and Peter just is a bit afraid well you would be because people were dying because of because of their faith in Roman times he doesn't really take the heat again Paul is saying to Peter you're not walking straight down the line of what the truth of the gospel says You don't need to add anything else. It's just rubbish that you have to do that. There are several things that strike me about these two men and some similarities between them. 
go away and read Acts 9 to 11. I might have said that already. You might remember now. They both know deep, deep shame. I mean, can you imagine having to stand up and talk to, to fellow Christians to help them grow in their Christian life and they know about you that you are a bit of a coward and you walked out on Jesus the night that he died. Can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine the shame of having killed Christians who are following Jesus? They, they, they knew deep shame, but they knew deeper love and renewal and forgiveness. second thing that strikes me about both of them is that they were both on a completely different path than their life they expected their lives to be on. Paul didn't expect to be telling people that weren't Jewish that Jesus was alive, that Jesus was the Christ. And I'm pretty sure Peter expected to be a fisherman. They were both in places they didn't know, they didn't expect to be in, and that's what God does with us, isn't it? He puts us in places we didn't expect to be in, with people we don't expect to be with. But why does he do that? Why does he mix it all up and put challenges in front of us? Well, because he wants us to change, but because he wants his spirit to be able to tell the world the good news of Jesus. They also both recognized there was one true gospel and that there would, there would be fake gospels. To Peter, Paul, Peter talks in to Peter, Peter writes a lot about it. And he also, at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, calls Paul his dear brother. They had a fellowship. They had a fellowship together of having been shamed and forgiven and having their lives turned upside down and having a new job to do, different jobs to do, very, very different jobs to do in the world. One to go and talk to people that were Jewish ethnically and another to go and talk to the whole world, everyone else. But they both knew Jesus. They both knew the one true gospel. They both spent their lives trying to please God and implement things that would please God. There's nothing self-righteous in Paul's writings. I know it sounds like it, but you can't write in a self-righteous way if you've been that shamed. I just don't think it's possible. But he writes with authority because he knows what he has is from God. Okay, final thing, which isn't, maybe it's another story. How do we please God? Orientation towards the poor. One of the things that um, it talks about in Galatians 2 um, is uh, Paul talks about the, being in fellowship with his fellow apostles. The only extra thing they asked me was that we should continue to remember the poor verse 10, chapter 2. There's more about that in Acts. Verse 
what that's referring to in Galatians chapter verse 10 is relief for the poor in Judea. Somebody has a revelation, has a word from the Lord in Acts chapter 11 about a famine coming and the, and the believers outside of Judea put money together and Paul and Barnabas bring gifts. Giving money is a thing that we do as an act of grace in the Holy Spirit. It's taken me a while to get my head around this, but it is a thing that we do as an act of grace. This is a picture of a place called Burkina Faso. Um, Burkina Faso means the land of the upright man. And at the moment, there are hundreds of thousands of refugees that are swamping around the borders getting into Burkina Faso, where there is currently peace. But there's quite an uneasy feeling in the place. Um, And one of the things that I do is work with a charity called International Needs, And we are raising money at the moment to give to our friends in Burkina Faso. Hundreds of people have become Christians from this refugee influx, which is amazing. Um, We've built a hospital. We've got two schools that run in Burkina Faso. And the government have shut down the uh, non-Christian schools, the, the other schools in the area, because they were being run in a corrupt way and money was being robbed from parents. Isn't that amazing? But now the authorities have said they want 80 new school places in this school and we're going to find some money. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit in us, in this country, we will raise money to enable 80 refugee children to go to school. That's the very thing I was eager to do, Paul says. Other agencies are available on the Global Mission Board. (laughs) Giving money is kind of one of the easiest things we can do as an act of grace. It's a lot less sweat than praying. Well, I find it a lot less sweat than praying. Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, just to finish. I've written it out here in four different translations because I thought it might be just helpful to just think for a moment about what it's trying to say. So the top one is the NIV that Linda read. And Paul's saying, I gave them a hard time when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Then the new, new Revised Standard Version says they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. Another translation by N.T. Wright says, when I saw they weren't walking straight down the line of the gospel. And the message says it very similarly, but when I saw they were not maintaining a steady, straight course according to the message. I guess that's the challenge today, this evening from the Spirit, is am I... Are you, are we collectively walking straight down the line of the gospel? Are we letting God into all of our lives, not just bits of it? Are we talking, not just doing? Are we talking about the new life that Jesus has given us? Are we spending time praying and concentrating on the scriptures? Are we spending time together praying as the engine room of our church?
what can we what can we take from thinking about Paul and Peter and that deep shame that we all have in front of Jesus and that forgiveness that he gives us and the fellowship that we have with each other knowing that forgiveness we all know the darkness in our own hearts don't forget the Paul thank you band for um, the worship at the top of the the service today one of the tracks that's been in my head all week as I've been thinking about this evening was that I'm no longer a slave to fear and that second verse from my mother's womb you have chosen me really kind of it encapsulates what Paul's saying here is part of his testimony he was chosen from the very beginning to do a very specific and difficult job and I don't know I don't know I'm always surprised by what the Lord asks me to do and I'm not going to guess what it is next really and I don't know what he's asking you to do but as I close I'm just going to read some lines of a song as a prayer for us to consecrate ourselves again and our hearts back into that straight line of the gospel let's pray father hear my prayer of consecration have my heart again all of me upon the altar mind and soul and strength Light the fire that I remember, burned within my soul. Rekindle the flaming, fading embers, holy flame of love. Spirit, breathe upon this altar. Father, have my undivided heart. Jesus, I surrender. All I want is to be set apart for you in the shelter of your mercy I lay down my life every breath to offer up a living sacrifice my life to lift you high my heart to bring you joy my hands to serve the ones you love to comfort and restore You're worthy of my praise, Jesus. You're worthy of my everything. Have it all. Spirit, breathe upon this altar. Father, have my undivided heart. Jesus, I surrender. All I want is to be set apart for you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.